Are there any any questions, comments, concerns, outrage, glitter, sunshine? No, I think I'm good. Awesome. Happy Pride. Yeah, last yes. week, last week of Pride Month. Welcome to Queering Ability. My name is Wayne Glass. I use he, him, his pronouns, and... And hi, my name is Spencer Scruggs, and I use he, him, and his pronouns. And this is a podcast in collaboration with ACPA's Coalition for Sexuality and Gender Identities and the Coalition for Disability. In this endeavor, we aspire to amplify the voices of queer and trans individuals with a disability or who identify as having different abilities. These individuals are student affairs practitioners, researchers, higher education faculty, and higher education administrators. This space is meant to highlight, honor, and celebrate their stories navigating the intersections. Today, we have Emily Shira Cutler, who is an assistant editor at the critical psychiatry web magazine, Mad in America, and the founder of the grassroots group, Southern California Against Forced Treatment, which raises awareness about the issue of forced psychiatric treatment. She received her BA in communications from the University of Pennsylvania, where she completed an honors research thesis on the topic of sizeism and fat acceptance within schools. Emily has moved to Tampa, Florida to pursue her PhD in behavior, behavioral and community science at the University of South Florida. Her research interests include involuntary commitment, MAD studies, fat studies, disability studies, university, and the social and systemic causes of suicide. Some facts about her personal background is that she would be willing to share with the audience are uh, she's autistic, demisexual, and a victim of involuntary commitment and a victim of coercive behavioral therapy. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And just as a quick wow. shout out for folks, uh, Queering Ability can be found through searching Queering Ability on iTunes and Apple Play. And this podcast is free to subscribe and can be downloaded for travel-friendly engagement. So, Emily, yes. tell us a little bit about yourself in addition to your bio. Um, so, yeah, as my bio said, I'm an incoming PhD student at the University of South Florida. Um, I'm a really, really involved with the Mad Pride movement, which finds value and celebrates um, the state's traits and characteristics we usually think of as mental illness, um, and also an activist within the neurodiversity movement. Um, and those kind of overlap with my research interests as well. Awesome. Cool. So now you mentioned that you're currently in a you're you're about to start your PhD program. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, awesome! Very nice. So, uh, have you moved down to Florida? <laughs> yeah, I just moved about a week ago. Awesome! Very cool. So, well, good luck in your endeavors. That's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So, if you're comfortable, can you tell us a little bit more about your multiple intersecting identities and how they've shaped you as a person as well as a professional? 
Yeah. Um, so I'm queer. I'm neurodivergent. I'm, um, I identify as mad or someone who's experienced madness, kind of what we call madness. Um, and I'm also a victim of involuntary commitment. And um, those, yeah, those definitely shaped who I am, um, what I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about um, fighting for the rights of both queer communities and mad and neurodivergent communities. I, um, I really believe in, I like to call cognitive liberty, which is the right of every person to experience any state or trade or um, way of being that they want, that they choose, that they were born with or came into however else. Um, and that passion has definitely fueled my research interests as well. And um, I'm really looking forward to starting to um, adopt the identity of researcher as well and um, look into these communities from a more academic lens and look into um, the types of social justice issues that affect these different communities. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if, you, if you're comfortable sharing, can you talk a little bit more about MAD? Can you like in, explaining uh, how you would define that for you? Yeah. Um, so I part of the MAD Pride movement is kind of in deconstructing the notion of what gets called madness and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really think there's one objective or, you know, universal definition of madness. I think it, yeah. it varies kind of based on culture and context. So just as an example, in some cultures and definitely during some parts of history, queerness has been considered madness. Um, and, you know, and, and in some cultures, hearing voices is considered madness. In other cultures, it might be considered more of a spiritual phenomenon. Um, so it can be really context dependent on someone's geographical location or, you know, political context, family, individual clinician even, as to whether they're diagnosed mental illness or madness um, so so for me that's that's part of my activism is really questioning that and really pointing to the subjective nature of what we consider madness and also um, pointing to um, the universality of it in some ways for me I think madness is in some ways a universal part of the human experience in terms of just experiencing um, extreme emotions or being different yeah. Um, and so yeah for me that's what it is it's about kind of embracing that as an identity as well and embracing the madness I've experienced and or whatever I've experienced that's kind of been called madness um, in my context and being proud of that as opposed to thinking of that as an illness or thinking of myself as in need of a cure. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for helping us understand that. I think that speaking on behalf of myself, I I personally have never heard uh, it explained in that way, and I really appreciate like the context and the perspective, and and I'm hoping that those listening also can gain some insights on that. So once again, thank you for uh, enlightening us. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So if you're comfortable, um, can you talk to us a little about like what your day-to-day -day work looks like, uh, whether at previous institutions or soon to be your PhD program, like what, like what your work looks like and, and you know, how you navigate that and the types of students that you work with or have worked with? Uh, um, so currently, I'm an assistant editor at the critical psychiatry web magazine, Mad in America. Yeah, um, yeah. And so my work is a lot about reviewing submissions, um, 
and kind of um, doing some administrative tasks to help the magazine run, but really trying to help um, give a platform to a variety of perspectives within the domain of what's called critical psychiatry, which is basically any perspective critiquing um, the current paradigm of psychiatric care or mental health care in the U.S. So perspectives that range from kind of critiquing over-medication to critiquing um, coerced medication and coerced mental health treatment to critiquing maybe diagnosis um, and kind of, again, critiquing the construct of madness. Um, and a big part of my role is I help with, with our continuing education uh, organization, and that um, involves courses that provide critiques of the psychiatric paradigm, as well as offer alternatives to psychiatric care. Um, so one of our big upcoming course series is a webinar series on mad studies, which is kind of a field that questions what madness is and looks at a variety of philosophical and cultural and historical perspectives on madness. Um, and the psychiatric model or the medical model is seen as just one interpretation as opposed to the absolute truth about mental illness or madness. Um, and so that's really my work at Mad in America. And I'm sort of transitioning into my role as a PhD student. And I've been working on some studies, um, getting ready to put out a survey on just people who identify as activists with lived experience of some sort of mental health treatment or um, mental health diagnosis or extreme state or um, any sort of phenomenon that might be diagnosed as mental illness or a symptom of mental illness. Um, and just looking at the differences between how different groups identify and what kind of fuels people's activism. So um, one hypothesis is that maybe people who have had negative experiences of treatment um, might end up uh, engaging in activism more critical of forced treatment or things like that. Oh, that's a lot. Wow, that's awesome. Mm. So it sounds like you're you're like teaching and then writing and um, I, I'm curious to know like what's the typical demographic or audience that your uh, work typically goes out to. Um, it goes out to mainly mental health professionals, um, Mad in America anyways, that's our main demographic, as well as a lot of people who identify as psychiatric survivors. That's kind of a term for people who have survived um, harm due to the psychiatric system, such as coerced treatment or maybe adverse effects of medications. Um, and also people who identify maybe as mental health consumers or people currently um, who are clients of mental health services, as well as peer specialists and family members, um, and also just the general public. Awesome. Wow. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. So um, I have one more question, and then we're going to actually, like, switch gears a little bit. Play a fun little game. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what, like, what inspires and, like, motivates you to do what you do? Well, I've always been passionate about combating paternalism. That's abuses that are committed, um, said to be committed for the abusee's own good. Um, so for their health or for their safety. Um, 
And in college, I ended up getting involved with the fat acceptance movement um, that's fighting against sizeism, against shaming and um, discrimination and prejudice that occurs that's kind of said um, to occur for people's own good so that they'll lose weight, so that they'll become thinner if you just fat shame them enough. Um, and so um, I got really interested in fighting against that. And then I personally experienced involuntary commitment and my focus sort of shifted to being interested in the ways that mental health treatment and um, coercion within the mental health system is used, um, quote unquote, for someone's own good. Um, and that kind of abuse happens. Um, and so that's kind of been my passion is just fighting paternalism in whatever form that it's taking. Wow, great. That's, that's awesome. Sounds like you're doing the most, which is great. <laughs> But it's it, it's the most it's the most in in such a needed way because I think those are those are, are things that aren't being talked about and they aren't um, they aren't a focus in you know on uh, on behalf of very many people and so um, it's refreshing to hear that there's somebody that's bringing those things to the forefront and that that is willing to challenge that norm. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think that's a major issue is that definitely different forms of oppression are starting to be talked about. And that's great and very positive. But I think paternalism is often a unique form of oppression that's left out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we have a we have a game called Speed Round, and this is essentially an opportunity for our audience members to get to know some random things about you. Um, and then after that, uh, I'm actually going to pass the baton over to Spencer. So we just have a couple of quick questions for you, and we're ready whenever you are. Yeah, ready. All right. What's your favorite animal? Um, cats. <laughs> favorite place you visited? Philadelphia. Best place of where you've lived, or best part of where you live? Um, where I live now, uh, uh, I guess USF's campus, University of South Florida. Nice. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Being invisible. Yes. What makes you happy? Uh, friends and family. Shark or dolphin? Dolphin. Super Mario or Donkey Kong? Super Mario. Awesome. Great. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate that. And with with that, I'm going to pass it over to Spencer. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate all all that you you have mentioned before. I'm I'm sort of fascinated with um, maybe you could explain a little bit more about um, some of the research that you've already done on on sizeism and fat acceptance within schools and and that sort of thing. Um. Yeah. Um, so in my undergrad, I, I did I focused a lot of my research on um, kind of weight based bullying. So bullying that occurs due to a child's weight or size. And I found that weight and size is the most common reason for bullying, actually. Um, that's a, a lot of people report um, weight-based bullying, and it, it causes um, all sorts of mental health and physical health effects on people, um, including depression and suicidality. Um, and so for my honors thesis, I um, tested a few different 
weight-based bullying reduction strategies. There's a lot of like general anti-bullying programs out there, but not a lot of anti-bullying programs that address specific factors that lead to bullying. Um, there's a couple that address um, bullying based on sexual orientation. Um, so I kind of wanted to take from those strategies that are already being used to address those factors and um, look at how we might be able to address weight and size. Um, and so I um, tested both narrative interventions that um, kind of give kids a story to read about someone who's experienced weight-based bullying, as well as expository interventions that look at, um, that are just more persuasive essays giving kind of the facts about weight-based bullying. Um, and actually I found that the expository um, intervention was more effective, but it was a pretty small sample size. So um, it, you know, it didn't have, it's not definitive. Um, there were a lot of limitations. So I'd, I'd definitely be interested in exploring that more. Sure. Do you, I don't know, maybe, maybe in your research um, at some point in time or, or um, just in, in your general academic interest, um, have you come across anything that specifically looks at how sizeism and and um, um, and fat acceptance or, or lack thereof uh, sort of or how that manifests manifests itself within the queer community uh, among queer students um, and, and have you seen any of that what what do you what are are sort of do you feel are like the main narratives in in, in that realm if you if you feel like you could speak on that yeah, I actually haven't seen too much about queer students. I know that definitely um, in like the gay community, there are a lot of narratives of yeah. um, people feeling intense pressure to conform to a certain standard of thinness um, and a lot of um, people talking about kind of eating disorder culture in that community. But I, I haven't encountered too many narratives from specifically queer students. Mm hmm. So therefore, it, it's likely likely an area that that needs much more research. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I guess we, you know we can we can switch gears a little bit. So, um, you know, your current, of course, you've mentioned you've currently doing your your PhD work and and that sort of thing. So, how do you feel like your your own identities influence? Um, influence your work in in this space. Um, you know, influence your work as a PhD student. Influence you know your um, sort of lens as you're you're going through the you know um, your research um, your research and, and sort of your your career pursuits. Um, well, yeah, my identities have definitely given me my passion for what I'm for my research interests and for what I want to research. Um, in terms of I identify as mad and neurodivergent and queer and um, definitely am interested in exploring those communities and how they intersect as well as the different social justice issues they face. Um, I'm also really interested in kind of the activists specifically around those issues um, and kind of, yeah, how, how people's identities fuel their activist work. For... Uh, and I guess m maybe um, considering uh, your identities, your work, um, some of your your expertise uh, when it, when it comes to addressing 
the uh, the intersections and the the cross influences of queerness and ability. Um, what would you do? You have you know any particular advice or strategies uh, for how higher education professionals, student affairs professionals, um, how educational prof- ed- professionals uh, that work in education, how they can better support students, how they can um, uh, be better scholars and better uh, better practitioners. Um, and and provide better support for for queer students with uh, different abilities and and um, divergent um, um, abilities and whatnots. Um, I would definitely say representation is a big part of it. So, um, giving examples in class of. Um, queer disabled people um, showing those intersections also just um, really teaching finding ways to bring in um, queer scholars disabled scholars uh, queer activists disabled activists depending on the subject that you're teaching um, also encouraging people to um, incorporate those voices and those perspectives into their papers and projects um, and then I also think just recognizing the different perspectives on disability specifically. Um, I think queerness is more and more being recognized as something that's not to be pathologized. It doesn't mean you're sick or wrong. I think disability to some extent is still um, seen as something that's wrong with you, is seen as something that um, should be cured in some way. Um, and so really, I think um, people in higher education can start to have increased recognition that not all disabled people see it that way, that sometimes they're proud of that identity or sometimes it's not, um, they don't see it as something wrong individually with them. It's um, the disability lies in their external environment. Um, between people. And so, um, yeah, I think bringing that recognition, especially in the mental health world, I think there's a lot of higher education initiatives to kind of encourage your student to seek mental health treatment or mental health counseling, um, as opposed to um, really viewing whatever a student is experiencing is not necessarily something that needs to be treated or cured or um, maybe not something wrong with them individually, but something that's resulting from their environment, from the higher education system or um, student debt or things, um, external issues that affect students. So maybe just um, looking at those factors or just being willing to take other perspectives on mental health and on disability. I also um, know that you had mentioned in in your bio um, and and as you've explained to us um, on our time uh, in this episode that you were a victim of involuntary commitment and a victim of coercive behavior therapy. Could you maybe explain a little more about that within your comfort level um, and uh, potentially how that affects multiple um, multiple queer individuals and and um, I just I as you're mentioning that I, I I think of the the institutionalized history of disability and <laughs> and how that that very much I mean those those um, those those experiences certainly can speak to that 
that um, cross influence and that intersection of queerness and ability um, from a very historical perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so growing up, I've always kind of felt um, like I didn't fit in, like I'm not normal, like something's wrong with me. I, um, I'm i autistic, so I was always just kind of weird and awkward. And I'm also queer. Um, and I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, a pretty conservative part of the country where that wasn't always accepted. Um, and, uh, yeah, I ended up being bullied and my parents kind of, um, thought that maybe something was wrong. They kind of were panicked that I didn't fit in. I ended up seeing a bunch of different therapists and being given a bunch of labels, told that I was mentally ill, all these different things, put on meds from age seven, um, and basically, things just kept getting worse and worse because I always internalized this narrative that something was wrong with me, that I I just couldn't fit in, that um, basically I, I wasn't normal. I wasn't ever going to have any sort of normal life, any sort of sense of belonging in my life. Um, and eventually, um, this continued into college. And then, um, so actually the night before my college graduation, um, I was struggling with a lot of these thoughts. Um, my parents were in town for my graduation and, um, I was kind of, um, talking with them and it came up in the conversation that, um, they were disappointed in me and embarrassed of me because I had chosen to pursue a degree in social work after college instead of um, something more prestigious in their eyes. Um, and so I started feeling just extremely depressed, extremely ashamed that like not only was I just abnormal and didn't fit in, but I was a failure to my family. I was a disappointment to my parents, an embarrassment to them even. Um, and I expressed that I had passive suicidal thoughts um, and I was taken to the ER and then I was immediately um, involuntarily committed. Um, I was locked up in a psychiatric emergency room for about 10 hours and that was basically a seclusion room. It was a very small room with glass walls. Um, and uh, no one there, nothing in it. Um, and I was just bawling and crying and saying, I just want to go to my graduation. Please let me out. Um, mm -hmm. And a nurse there um, who was kind of in a room adjacent basically said, if, if you wanted to go to your graduation, you should have kept your mouth shut. Um, and, um, yeah, and so after that, I was transferred um, to a psychiatric ward for um, the next 48 hours, and um, I was strip-searched, I was restrained, um, I was given drugs that I pretty much had to take or I wouldn't be able to leave, um, and, um, yeah, basically, just during that time, during my involuntary commitment, it just was so clear to me that I completely didn't have any power, any voice, um, any autonomy over my body or what happened to me. You know, for example, with a strip search in any other situation, if someone tells you to take off all your clothes, you would be like, I would be like, anyways, excuse me, no, um, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and um, But in this situation, it was like extremely clear, I cannot say no, that's not an option. Um, if I say no, who knows what will happen? Will I be 
injected with something? Will I be restrained? Will I be held here longer? Like, you know, so it was just very clear. No was not an option during these 48 hours. I had to do everything that they told me to. Um, and so I, I basically feigned being just a super compliant patient, took all the meds they gave me, went to all the group therapies, um, was just super compliant with everything. And um, it said, you know, I'm mentally ill and I'm so grateful that I'm here so that I have this chance to get better. Um, and fortunately I was released in 48 hours. Um, but that experience definitely left me with like long lasting trauma. And mm -hmm. I, I had only experienced passive suicidal thoughts up until then. I just, you know, up until then I had thought of myself as a failure and a disappointment and all these things. And I, I felt, you know, just like, I just wish I, I could just disappear. I wish I could just get hit by a car or something. That was the line that got me locked up. Um, you know, but never any like plans or active attempts, but after the involuntary commitment, I became extremely, extremely actively suicidal and just really wanted to kill myself because um, I just knew that I couldn't really tell anybody about how traumatized I was by the event. People tend to um, blame the person who's experienced it. You know, if I ever mentioned that it wasn't a positive experience, I was told you should be really grateful that that happened to you you know, that someone cared enough to step in and get you the help you needed. Um, I, or I was told, well, you know, you must've been really sick. It must've been really necessary for you to be locked up and voluntary commitments don't happen unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and so I really couldn't tell many people. Um, there was, it was just a lot of victim blaming. Um, and I also knew that if I told people how much it had affected me, that it was making me so suicidal, then I would get locked up again. Um, so I, I did eventually attempt suicide a couple months later. Um, and um, yeah, and it had an even worse experience with involuntary commitment after that. Um, but yeah, just it really shows, I think, the way that dim blaming is carried out and the way that people, um, yeah, people who experience involuntary commitment because of often because of factors um, like systemic oppression and exclusion because of other identities that they might have, um, they then are further marginalized and shamed for having this experience of involuntary commitment. I just want to name that I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. And like, I, I, I recognize that that could have been quite some time ago or, yeah. or maybe not. And um, I'm glad that you're with us today and you're able to share that with us and that sounds weird to like verbalize that but um i just want to say how grateful um i am that you took the time to share that with us thank you, thank you. absolutely Ugh. people can suck sometimes yes yes, <laughs> yes. yes. that's my initial cynical thought <laughs> this is like trying to advocate for ourselves and others and they want to uh, take it to another extreme that ends up causing more trauma and more harm and I just have the mm -hmm. utmost empathy for like what you shared and I, I, I also grew up in Alabama I grew up in Montgomery oh. so kind of like thinking about like how challenging it can be and also like it's not a reflection of the whole state but I do have so much empathy for like what it means to live in Alabama and like be a child in Alabama so Yep. Lived in Montgomery, very familiar with 
you know, the areas that you may have lived in. But anyway, I just wanted to interject and like say that like that was something that was coming up as you were talking. And, and once again, thank you so much for like taking time to share that with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for allowing me to. I, um, so one one part of my experience was I was going to speak at my graduation, actually, um, and I missed that. And so um, I remember at the time, one thing I felt was just this sense of like, man, I like missed this opportunity to speak. And like, here I am locked up, like having zero voice, like having to say yes to everything anyone wants to do to me. Um, and yeah, having zero chance to speak. Um, and I thought I'd lost that opportunity. So, um, it means a lot to me now, whenever I get a chance to speak and whenever I get a chance to tell my story. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I, um, I mean that, I want to just put out there that we're incredibly thankful for you being willing to just open up and, and be as, as open and as responsive to discussing these concerns, because these are the very things that, Lots of our students on our campuses um, and the the people that we work with, that these are a lot of the things that to one degree or another they may be going through. And, and uh, it's powerful when they can hear something like this and, and, um, and, and identify with it. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and speaking speaking of that, um, I sort of have one last very deep question, um, oh. and it and it comes also from a very personal place, having worked with um, being in a state where uh, you know we have the Baker Act, and 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 I've worked with very many students that have been bakered or been checked in on by by campus police and and that sort of thing, and and. Having been in those situations where I'm working with those students mm-hmm. and, and having to having to having to manage some of the policy of it all with also yeah. validating the humanity of these students and and considering some of the the perspectives and the realities and truths that you've brought up. What do you have any advice, you know, in, in terms of of working with students that are are sort of in that space that that struggle with with um, those those thoughts and 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 that sort of thing on a daily basis? And, and how can we as as higher education professionals, as student affairs professionals, what can we do to change that narrative on our campuses so that so that we're not not causing additional harm to our students and and also balancing the need for for um as as a lot of um as a lot of administrators would call it and that sort of thing a a a sort of safe campus um and whatnot and feel free if you would like to challenge any of those assertions or anything like that or, or whatnot I am certainly open to that that conversation so right um so this notion of a safe campus I find yeah. that really fascinating I uh-huh. find it really fascinating that like the idea of a student you know doing something with their own 
body, first of mm -hmm. all, choosing to do whatever it is with her own body, that that could ever be seen as an unsafe campus. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ideas in our culture that suicide somehow harms other people, um, which, of course, it's absolutely devastating to lose a friend by suicide or to, you know, to lose a student on a campus by suicide. Um, but the idea that that and, and I, I really do want to acknowledge, you know, that's that's devastating. Um, but the idea that this threatens safety, that this somehow threatens mm -hmm. people's bodily autonomy or, um, you know, as if as if it's an act of violence, um, I think yeah. that's really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's unsafe is a lot of the factors that drive people to suicide. Um, yeah. So high tuition mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> might be something to look into, student mm -hmm. debt. Um, you know, I think just students today face enormous amounts of student debt, and it's really scary. Um, I think neoliberal uh, cultures on campus that are mm -hmm. just highly competitive often um, – and really, I think, uh, create barriers for students to do well or be successful. Um, it's yeah. often uh, often in terms of like disability, students receive very few accommodations or there's this idea that if a student is asking for accommodations, um, then, you know, they must not really be qualified or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and in terms of just campus cultures can just be incredibly devaluing of both queer students um, and uh, disabled students, um, just, in, yeah, incredibly so. And so I think all of those factors can be just absolutely um, unsafe for people and cause suicidality. And so the idea that in responding to those factors with however a person responds, you know, whether it's, you know, using substances or self-harming or suicide, the idea that the response is unsafe as opposed to the system that's like that's engaging in all of these different forms of oppression against students. Um, I see that as just incredibly problematic. Um, and so I would say that um Universities, ad, university administrators especially, they really need to take responsibility for the power they have over students' lives mm -hmm. um, and all the factors that they might be contributing to that are creating um, suicidality and that are creating um, mental health crises. And then I would just say um, acknowledging that they need to acknowledge that people who are, you know, engaging in these responses to those factors, um, the idea of like further punishing those responses with um, involuntary commitment, or I think a big issue on university campuses is forced leaves of absences. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, you know, just um, on top of, um, you know, economic and social marginalization, um, you're going to add to that by just totally stripping a person of their entire community and life and hopes of graduating and things like that. Um, because of how they've responded to these other factors. Um, that's just, yeah, that's like very layered, very systematic oppression. Yeah. Yes, tell us. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as, that, that's exactly that, that's what we're looking for because I think I those conversations aren't necessarily being had on campuses. And, and I think uh, 
they they need to be they they need to be happening they need to you know um and so hopefully our our viewer our listeners will um take some of this and and be willing to engage in some of those um conversations on their campuses so yeah that would be ideal well uh is there anything else that you would like to share with the world anything else that uh, maybe we didn't get to talk about that you that you really want to um, sort of put out there for our listeners? No, I just wanted to say I'm really happy this podcast is happening. I think um, the intersection of queerness and disability is just super rarely talked about. So thanks for all the work you're doing. How can people connect with you on social media? Um, so my name on Facebook is just Emily Shira Cutler. That's spelled S-H-E-E-R-A. Um, and uh, my email address is ecutler, C-U-T-L-E-R, at mail.usf.edu. Um, and I do blog about a lot of my ideas on Mad Pride and Cognitive Liberty um, on a, a blog space called radicalabolitionist.org. Wonderful. And is there are there uh, other mediums that that maybe you want to share? How can people get connected with um, the different publications um, that you're a part of and, and some of the different work that you're doing? Other, uh, unless unless that's the your social media um, that you just mentioned is exactly how. Um, yeah, my social media will have a lot, but also um, if people are interested in Mad in America, um, which is less of a personal publication and more of um, just um, the publication representing a lot of different viewpoints on these issues, um, that's madinamerica.com. Perfect. Well, I uh, think that's it. Uh, we want to thank you so much for being a part of the podcast, for sharing your narrative, for uh, showing up in, in such a, a brave way and, and, and um, vulnerable way through the podcast. And, and I think that I personally can't show enough of my gratitude for that, and, and, and we're incredibly thankful to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Oh, my gosh, Emily, thank you so much yeah. for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was awesome. I'm, I'm really excited that you guys are doing this. Absolutely. Thank you again. Yes. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Bye.